A picture is worth a thousand words, isn't it? At least that's what, that's what the phrase says. And I think in many ways that is probably true. Sometimes words just can't completely communicate all the things that we want words to communicate. For instance, if someone texted me, my cat will do anything for a treat, I'd be like, okay, what's that mean? And then you see the picture and it would just explain so much more, right? You'd see, and that's a little bit more than the average cat maybe. Um, or if someone texted me saying, we're having a really terrible time trying to potty train our kid, I could relate to that until I see the picture. That's a little bit more than just normal, okay? Or how about if someone texted me saying, our daughter has a drinking problem, I would be very concerned until I saw this picture. Pictures and images, they sometimes do a little bit more for information than what words can communicate. And I'm uh, going through an inconsistent series, meaning I'm not preaching every week, but a couple weeks ago I started on a series which is looking at three images of Jesus in Revelation. And a couple weeks ago, what we looked at was Jesus in chapter one, and we saw him as the, great, the holy anointed one. The son of man who is set apart, who, who is one who is like us, but goes, to goes before the ancient one, the father, and is found worthy. He fulfills the roles of prophet, priest, and king. And then he writes to the churches in chapters 2 and 3, and, and he calls them out for their sins, but he also calls them out from their sins as well. And how he does this is he actually, to each of the churches, gives part of the image of himself in chapter 1 when he does this. It, what Jesus is saying is if you want to answer, if you want to solve your problems that you have in, in the church, look at this image of me, because this image of me will solve the problems you have in your church. Today we're going to be looking at chapters 4 and 5 of Revelation. I encourage you to pull that out. We're going to be reading big sections of Scripture at times in this, because we just really have to digest what, is, what it is being said here. But in chapters 6 through around 18, um, we're not going to really hit on those, but what, we, what, what I do want to look at here is that in those passages, what we see is a lot of suffering. There's, there's some seals that are opened, there's trumpets, and there are bowls that are poured out. And each one of these produces some suffering. And in many of these cases, it is Christians who are not exempt from these sufferings as well. And, it, and, it asks these, and, and what 4 and 5 do is just like chapter 1 helps answer the issues of 2 and 3, Four and five, these glimpses at four is a glimpse of God, and five is a glimpse of Jesus. When we see the images of them, they help us deal with the issues. How do we handle the suffering that is to follow? And it also begins to help us answer the question, or at least part of, the, part of it, is why do bad things happen to good people? Isn't this one of the big questions that people have and sometimes what people use to try to refute that God is good is why do bad things happen to good people? I mean, it doesn't take much for me to convince you that our world is a pretty chaotic place, does it? I mean, it seems like almost a weekly thing that we have mass shootings. It's not an uncommon thing. Suicide, depression, and anxiety are through the roof. Political and power struggles are a normal thing in our workplaces, 
in our nation, in our world. I mean, let's just be honest. Just let's look at the life of Antonio Brown in and of himself. That's a lot of chaos in just one person's life. It's pretty crazy. And personally, in our churches, it can be unpredictable and chaotic as well. We look up to heaven and we cry, God, how can a good God allow some of these things to happen? My dad is a good person. Why is it that he has cancer? My good friend, she was an amazing person. Why is it that she gets killed by a drunk driver? I've went out of my way to be faithful in my business. Why is it failing? We see here for a moment that God peels back the veil and he opens a door and he allows John to peek through into this worship service that happens in chapters four and five. And this worship service is the image that we need to be able to see to begin to answer some of these questions. The answer is in the worship. Let's go ahead and look in chapters four, chapter four of Revelation. Then as I looked, I saw a door standing open in heaven and the same voice I had heard before spoke to me like a trumpet blast. The voice said, come up here, and I will show you what must happen after this. And instantly I was in the spirit, and I saw a throne in heaven and someone sitting on it. We see already here, God is sitting on the throne. The one sitting on the throne was as brilliant as gemstones, like jasper and carnelian. And the glow of an emerald circled his throne like a rainbow. 24 elder, thrones surrounded him, and 24 elders sat on them. They were all clothed in white and had gold crowns on their heads. Now, an important thing to know and understand in Revelation is when, and this is in other passages of Scripture as well, but especially in Revelation, when we see numbers, what we really need to do a lot of the time is not count them, but we need to weigh them. Numbers have significance, and there's a reason why these numbers are used. For instance, there's four numbers that we see a decent amount of in Revelation, and these are biblical numbers. For instance, when I say the number three, there might be, what are some of the thoughts maybe that pop into your head in Scripture? My guess is the Trinity is one, one image that pops into your head, this the idea of God is three and one. And so when we see that number three, what we're doing is we're weighing that number and the number three means that it is a completeness in heaven or in the spiritual nature, in the spiritual form. When we see the number four, think about the four corners of the earth. You see that image a few times in scripture as well. And, and what that means is it's a completeness on earth or, or in the physical realm. Three plus four is, good job, you guys are good at math. Three plus four is seven. This is another complete number. This is a completeness in heaven and on earth. It's a, it's a total completeness. And then another number that we see is 12. And when you think of 12, my guess is that you think of 12 tribes of Judah, 12 disciples. Because that's a lot of what we see with 12. And 12 was kind of almost like a, a governing sort of number. But what it referred to is a completeness of God's authority and power. And what I believe here when we see this number of 24 elders, I believe what this is referring to is 12 representatives in the Old Testament of the Old Covenant that God made with his people. 12 representatives in the New Testament. And what this is symbolically saying is this is all of God's people here. 
All of God's people are here before the throne. And then we read on. It says, um, from the throne came flashes of lightning and the rumble of thunder. And in front of the throne were seven torches with burning flames. This is the sevenfold spirit of God. You remember, we don't just count, we weigh. Seven is a completeness, which means that this is the Holy Spirit here, the, Holy, the complete spirit of God. In front of the throne, oh, sorry, that's going to be my next point, so I'm not going to get to that yet. But we see here, this is the Holy Spirit. And the elders and the Holy Spirit are giving witness to the authority and to the power of God. And then let's read this. It says, in front of the throne was a shiny sea of glass, sparkling like crystal. This is one of my favorite images that, I see in, that we see in Revelation. You see, we just talked about how the world can be a very chaotic place, can't it? And seas were especially known to be a chaotic place. Uh, in, in, in Israel, there's the Sea of Galilee. And one area right off of the Sea of Galilee, there, if you've been there before, I know some of you have been there before, but there's kind of a mountainous area, and there's colder wind that comes off of the mountains. And then there's more of a lowland, deserty area, and, and warm air comes off of that, and they clash over the Sea of Galilee, and many times it can turn turbulent really quickly. And in fact, we see in Mark chapter 5 where Jesus is on a boat with his disciples and a storm comes up rather quickly and they were unprepared and Jesus is asleep and they wake him up and what happens? He calms the wind and the waves. And what we see here is that even though this world, this earth may be chaotic and turbulent and unpredictable before the throne of God, it is steady and calm. I mean, it doesn't take much to... to disturb the water, but before the throne of God, it is calm. It's natural to look into the world of chaos and say, really, I know that it says that, but how can God be in control? How can God be in, God, how can you be in control when, when people openly mock the name of Jesus? God, how can you be in control when sexual immorality is rampant on our screens, on our phones, and our computers, and everything else across our nation? God, how can you be in control when people seem, church people seem to care more about their things or what they do on the weekend than in being faithful? God, how can you be in control when depression and suicide rates are rising among pastors in our nation? God, how can you be in control? when absolute truth is mocked in the halls of our universities and colleges. But the reality is, is when we really understand and we believe, we see that God is here on the throne and that he is still in control even when this world is chaotic, we can, re we can remain confident because a sea is calm before the throne in heaven. Even when I can't see it on earth, God is in control. He calmed the winds and the waves before and he can do it again. You see, we worship God because he is in control. We worship God because of who he is. Let's read on a little bit more here. It says, In the center and around the throne were four living beings, each covered with eyes, front and back. The first of these living beings was like a lion, and the second was like an ox, and the third like a human face, and the fourth like an eagle in flight. Each of these living beings had six wings, and their wings were covered all over with eyes inside and out. Day after day and night after night, they keep on saying, 
Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, the one who was, who is, and who is still to come. So we see these four images here. And remember, number four, four represents a, com a completeness of earth or in the physical nature. So what we see here is we see, first off, a lion, which is representative of, as like the king of the wild animals. We see the ox, which is representative as, of the king of the, the domesticated animals. We see an eagle, which is like the king of, of all the animals in the sky. And we see man who is given stewardship over all creation. See, all creation here is before God worshiping him. And they are saying, holy, holy, holy. Holy means set apart. God, you are not like us. You are set apart. You are different. You are set apart and you are different because you are the one who was, who is, and who is still to come. You are eternal. And it continues to say these same things here. It reminds us as we read on here. Whenever the living beings give glory and honor and thanks to the one sitting on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever, the, the 24 elders fall down and worship the one sitting on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever. And they lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and they exist because you created what you pleased. I don't know. I mean, think about some of the things that maybe you are, are proud of, things that you take pride in. It, it may be, maybe you're a hard worker. And you use these things to glorify God. You, you, you're a hard worker. You do everything you can to do the best at your job, to be an example for everybody who's around you, that you use those influences to be able to, to reach Christ, or people for Christ. Or maybe it's your family. You have done everything you can to raise your family in a godly way, and you, you take great pride in that. Or maybe it's your acts of service. The things that you do to serve other people in need and, and to show glimpses of God in a, in, to people who maybe haven't seen him in that way before. Or maybe it's your abilities. You're great at music or you're very athletic or you're great with your hands and building things. Or maybe it's your knowledge or wisdom. These are all crowns that we earn. But you see here what the elders are doing. They don't put them down at their feet. They put them down at the feet of God. See, all the things that we earn, all the things that we do pale in comparison to who God is. And so everything that we do, everything that we earn, it's for his glory. It's not for our own. The, the revelation reminds us that our crowns are never for ourselves. They are for God. And our worship starts when we see God for who he is. And when we understand that he is in control. And it causes us to lay everything down that we've earned for his glory. The glory of a king is in the faithful sacrifice of his followers. When his followers are willing to lay down their crowns for the king. Here's the second point I want to talk about here. Our first response then in worship, of worship, is sacrifice. Because God is worthy of worship, our first response is sacrifice. Let's read here in chapter 5. Then I saw a scroll in the right hand of the one who was sitting on the throne. There was writing on the inside and the outside of the scroll, and it was sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel who shouted with a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals on this scroll and open it? 
But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and read it. Then John has a moment here. It says, I began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and read it. But one of the 24 elders said to me, stop weeping. Look, the lion of of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne, has won the victory. He is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. And so inner stage right, we have Jesus, the lion of Judah, who has come onto stage. And he is... Right when you think he is going to roar, it's at the moment, you know, if you're watching a play or something, you're expecting a roar to happen. And at this moment, the roar is about to happen. Look what happens. It says, then I saw a lamb that looked as if it had been slaughtered, but it was now standing between the throne and the four living beings and among the 24 elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which represent the sevenfold spirit of God that is sent out to every part of the earth. He stepped forward and took the scroll from the right hand of the one sitting on the throne. In ancient times, it was actually commonplace for nations to go out to war. In fact, it was even a seasonal thing. Like you almost have football season. When the weather got right, you would go out and you would fight. But it wasn't just for your nation. It was actually for your God. You see, your God was glorified by the power of your nation. And if you wanted to exalt your God, you would go out and you would destroy the other nations. So that way your God was known among all the nations. And this idea would even happen in, with the Jews. Uh, you see, even in the time of Jesus, when he came as the Messiah, people thought that he was going to overthrow the Roman government to reestablish a dominant Israel and that God's name would be glorified through that. And yet we see in this moment when we expect a roar, we see the sacrificial lamb. Worship is not just a feeling you get when you sing. The reality is worship is war. I know that maybe sounds weird, but who you worship is who you fight for, who you're fighting for in the war. Who do you call your God? Who do you call your king? Who do you identify with? The mark of a kingdom is its power, but the mark of power is ability to war. And the mark of the ability to war is to overcome. And Jesus is saying in that God's upside down kingdom, our mark of overcoming is actually sacrifice. He has turned turned upside down the idea of physical and earthly power in favor of a power that has overcome the grave. We have overcome the world when we sacrifice. So the mark of Jesus on our lives is our sacrifice. And you think about it, there's so much more power in sacrifice than there is in exertion of power. Think about some of the people who have most had an influence on you in your life. My guess is is that the names that pop into your mind are not celebrities, They're most likely parents, grandparents, their teachers, their pastors, their friends. They're people who have had, who have sacrificed for you and made an investment in your life. You see, our worship here, we're not here to be entertained. We are here to be mobilized. Jackie shared a quote this last week that I thought was great. It said, the church is not an audience to be entertained. It is an army to be empowered. And that is so true. We are an army of sacrificial warriors. 
We are an army of worshipers. Worshipers, worship is war. Worship is not primarily feeling-based. We need to get rid of this mindset that worship is this thing that we do in order to feel happy with God or that he's happy with us. That is not what worship is. Worship is an act of allegiance no matter how you're feeling. It is a conviction. It is a commitment to God, heart and soul. And as I said, as in spirit and truth as well, it is committing ourselves in sacrifice and obedience. Music, Bible teaching, prayer, acts of service, these are all very vital and important things, but what they do is they bring us to the actual act of worship. Our actual act of worship is giving our lives over in sacrifice and obedience to the God that we serve, the God that we fight for. If we don't learn how to worship, truly worship, then we are going to be obliterated when suffering hits. If we consider our worship just something that is for us or something that we can enjoy or feel better about our relationship with God, then we will be obliterated when we actually get faced with things, when we get faced with suffering. If we are worshipers of the living God, it doesn't matter what comes into our lives. If God is on the throne, then suffering is put into perspective. Do you want to experience true worship? Step out and join the ranks. How you worship is in the everyday moment of your life, which shows the side that you have chosen, the side that you have pledged allegiance to. Do you worship when someone cuts you off in traffic? Do you worship when the line at Walmart is incredibly long, or this happened to me the other day, incredibly short, but still takes 30 minutes to get through? That's even worse, by the way. That's really frustrating because you're thinking, okay, this is going to be quick. Nope. That's frustrating. Can you worship when your teacher or your boss, don't, they don't notice all this hard work that you put in to make the project successful? True worship happens not as an emotional experience. It happens when we join the war and we sacrifice. Our second response is this, not just sacrifice, but obedience as well. We worship God because of who he is, and we worship God because he is in control, but we also worship because of what Jesus has done. And our response to that in worship is what we do. It is our obedience. Let's continue reading here. And then he took the scroll. The four living beings and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each had a harp and they held gold bowls filled with incense, which were the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song. And with these words, they say, you are worthy to take the scroll and break its seals and open it. For you were slaughtered and your blood has ransomed people for God from every tribe and, and language and people and nation. And you have caused them to become a kingdom of priests for our God. And they will reign on the earth. And then I looked again and I heard the voices of thousands and millions of angels around the throne and of the living beings and the elders. And they sang in a mighty chorus, worthy is the lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, they sang, blessing and honor and glory and power belong to the one sitting on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. And the 24 living beings said amen and the 24 elders fell down and worshiped the lamb. 
In there, there was this phrase that said this. It says that we, you have called us, you have made us to be um, a kingdom of priests. And this means that each one of us is called to take on the, the role of a priest. What, it, what is it that a priest would do? A priest would prepare the, the worship service. They would uh, prepare all the elements that were necessary for the worship service. But they would also prepare and, and give the sacrifice. They would lead by, by, by the sacrifice, by giving the sacrifice for the sake of everyone. But they would also do this. They would teach and read and teach the word of God. They would read the scriptures and they would teach. And they would teach people to be obedient. The hallmarks in the worship of Yahweh have always been obedience and sacrifice. And we see this in the very life and image of Jesus. In Philippians 2.8, it says this, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Even in the Old Testament, we see this. Saul had, was going out to war and Samuel told him that he was going to go before uh, and he was going to present, uh, create a, a sacrifice before he goes into war. And Saul gets impatient and decides he's going he's to do the sacrifice. And what Samuel says to him is this, what is more pleasing to the Lord, your burnt offerings and sacrifices or your obedience to his voice? Listen, obedience is better than sacrifice. And in the New Testament, we continue to see the evolution, not the evolution, but the, the, the completeness of this idea. And it's, it's in this, it's in Romans 12, 1 and 2. And it says this, and so dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all that he has done for you. Let them be a, holy, a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find accept, acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way that you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. See, Jesus wants to teach us worship, but worship is in our obedience and our sacrifice. If you aren't willing to let your worship be, in your, be your obedience and your sacrifice, then when suffering hits, you won't be able to overcome it. If worship is just about how you feel or is about you, just you and what you enjoy, then you won't be ready when suffering hits. But if our worship is our service for the king, then if our blood can help the kingdom, let us gladly bleed for the king. The roar of the lion is the blood of the lamb. If the lion of Judah roars by becoming a sacrificial lamb, then let us as well. There's one other thing that I wanted to kind of bring out here. It's not written in the scriptures, but I think it's something that's really interesting to look at, and it's this, that it is John who gets this opportunity to go into heaven and to see this image. You remember John was a good friend of Jesus. In fact, we even see in scripture he was very possibly his, Jesus' best friend on earth. And it is John who Jesus gave the role to watch over his mother Mary when he was on the cross. And John is the only one left, the only eyewitness left to Jesus 
on earth. All the other disciples are dead. And John is probably in, he might be 90 years old. And he is given this glimpse into heaven. Why? Because our earthly perspective is so limited on what God is actually doing. Jesus opens the door to heaven and lets John take a glimpse to see what is happening so he will be the final voice in the scriptures of an important truth. This truth is that suffering is inevitable, but God is still on the throne. Suffering is inevitable, but but it is for a purpose. Suffering is inevitable, but it is not fatal. And suffering is inevitable, but it is not final. It is in the sacrifice and obedience that we truly learn to worship. If you would like, I'm going to pray here in just a minute, and if you would like to talk any more about this, I would love to talk with you. I'd love to pray with you if there's anything I can pray for, because you know what? The reality is life is hard. And the suffering isn't just for the future. It's happening now sometimes, isn't it? It might be happening in your life right now. And, And you hear this and it's like, man, this is exactly where I'm at right now. I just need someone to pray for me. I need someone to be there with me. And we have some amazing people here who would be happy to do that with you. So let me pray. And if God is speaking onto your heart and you need to talk about these things, you need to have someone pray over you, I encourage you to find me or find some of our other leaders around here, and we would love to pray for you. Dear Jesus, I thank you for this image of who you are, that we get to see God is on his throne, and that we get to see that the most important thing that we do, the the roar of the lion is the blood of the lamb. And so, Lord, let our worship be in our sacrifice and obedience and drawing a line in the sand and saying, this is who I pledge allegiance to. No, no matter how I'm feeling, no matter what happens, I pledge allegiance to the kingdom of God. And I will gladly give my life if it can bless the king. Lord, help us to be of that mindset daily so we can deal with the suffering that happens. In Jesus' name, amen.